Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2 as we are going through 1 and 2 Samuel. Second Samuel chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, we celebrate your goodness in our lives. We realize that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And God, we want to enjoy you during this time, this day. Jesus, you're our bread from heaven, our manna. And God, would you minister to each of our hearts, each of our souls, as we look at this long road that David was on to becoming king We know that our lives are long at times, that there needs to be perseverance and endurance. And so, God, would you give us confidence as we walk this journey with you? Please pour out your spirit on this service. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's think back for a moment on the beginnings of David. We're introduced to David. He's a shepherd. His life was simple then. There were days where it was probably even boring and mundane. However, everything changed when Samuel came to visit the home. He was to anoint a new king for Israel. David had many older brothers, started with the oldest, tall, handsome, intellectual. This has to be the next king of Israel, but God said no. That was the case for each of David's brothers. And finally, Samuel asks, do you have any more sons? Oh yeah, we've got that little red-haired kid out in the field with the sheep. He wasn't even thought to be invited to the party. That's how much he was discounted as far as being the next king of Israel. So here he comes. God speaks. This is the next king of Israel. He's anointed. If you put yourself in David's sandals, you'd probably think that this would be fulfilled in the near future. Maybe the next 10 years at the longest. However, David then goes on a really long road to becoming the king of Israel. Begins with him killing Goliath, but then David has Saul become his enemy. Saul tries to kill him. He's on the run. Finally, Saul is dead. Saul has been killed. And you'd think, well, well, that's pretty immediate. You know, David became king right after the death of Saul. But we'll find in our study this morning that he only became king of southern Israel, of Judah, over one tribe. It was seven and a half years before he would become the leader of all 12 tribes of Israel. I bet you can relate to some degree in your life this morning that you find yourself on a long road. God's called me to this. He's, he's put this in front of me. Maybe you're a college student and trying to get that, that degree. Maybe you're single and you're longing to be married and you find yourself in that place of, Man, it feels like it's never going to happen. Maybe there's things that God has spoken to you in your marriage or with your children, and you're just walking in obedience. You're walking in this long road. But when is it going to be fulfilled? And this is the key understanding, is God was growing David. God was making a man. God was making David in this process. God could have had David become king very quickly. But instead, God in his wisdom had this be a long process. So David could be Come more like the Lord. And the same is true in my life. It's not so much about a destination. It's about enjoying the process, learning more about the Lord, and allowing him to conform us to the image of Christ. Amen? And we forget that a lot of times. It's not getting the job. It's not getting married. It's not seeing our kids get to this point. It's not meeting this financial goal. It's, okay, God, you've got me on this long road for an opportunity to learn about you. So kick back and enjoy these two chapters. It's going to be a lot of reading this morning, so, so stay with me. 
Lord willing, we're going to cover two whole chapters and and glean some things. In verse 1, it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, Where shall I go up? And he said to him to go to Hebron. It would seem obvious that David would go back to Israel at this point, but David asks. And as we're journeying with the Lord, we want to make sure to seek God's direction in each step. And if you're taking notes, that's the first thing to write down. Seek God's direction in each step. David, I believe, was broken by his time with the Philistines. He didn't ask God if he should go live amongst the Philistines. He experienced a dry season, a difficult time because of it. Now we find him wanting God's direction. Lord, am I supposed to go to Judah? Yes. Should I go to Hebron? Yes, absolutely. And as we think about our lives in a marathon, we walk with the Lord over a period of time, it's easy to stop seeking the Lord, to stop asking for his direction, to think I've got this figured out. I know that what I should do. And scripture tells us don't Rely on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. What does it mean to acknowledge him? Okay, God, what what would you like me to do? I'm not going to assume your your direction. How do we seek his wisdom? By being in his word, by prayer, by getting godly counsel. I believe that God has a lot more to say about our lives than we would probably think. A lot more direction that he wants to give, and David seeks out this direction. Where's Hebron? If you Look at a map of Israel. Maybe there's a map in the back of your Bible. There's two inland bodies of water. There's the Sea of Galilee up north, and then there's the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea down south. And Hebron is directly west of the Dead Sea, south of Jerusalem. This is where David heads to. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinomi the Jezreelite, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household. So they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. Brings his 600 men with them and their families, quite a multitude that heads to Hebron. Then notice Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And this is the first time in the Old Testament that we see this division inside of Israel. One nation, but two divisions. Israel is north, the northern tribes, and then Judah is south. Later on into the Old Testament, we'll find that the the country actually splits into two countries for a period of time at Rehoboam's leadership, the son of Solomon. And it was 10 tribes up north, two tribes down south, and they stayed that way for a long period of time. And that's important when you're studying the Old Testament. But for right here, we find just one tribe. David's only anointed king over one tribe. Why Judah? Because that's his tribe. David's of the tribe of Judah. He was born in Bethlehem. So they come to David and they say, you are my king. But the other tribes, they're going to go with Saul's son, Ishbosheth. Continuing on, and they told David, saying, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the house who buried Saul, were the ones who buried Saul. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead and said to them, you are blessed of the Lord, for you've shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and have buried him. You may remember from last week, these men came, got the body of Saul, and they buried him out of respect for Saul. 
So David's now commending them. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. I will also repay you this kindness because you've done this thing. Now therefore, let your hands be strengthened, be valiant, for your master Saul is dead, and also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David's complimenting them, but he's also rallying them, saying, Saul is dead. Why don't you come and get behind what God is doing? I've just been anointed the king over Judah. And verse 8, but Abner the son of Ner. Now that's something that could easily be missed. How do you think Abner got his name? Because his dad was Ner. So we had a boy. What do you name him? Abner, right? Sometimes we get really creative in our name giving, right? So We've got Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army. So he had been the commander of Saul's army. He took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. As we look at 1 Samuel 14, verse 50, you may want to write that down. 1 Samuel 14, verse 50, we find that Ner was the uncle of Saul. The uncle of Saul. So this would make Abner Saul's cousin. So this is all in the family here. It would make sense then that Abner would stand with Ishbosheth and say, We're not going to hand over authority to David, but we're going to set up Ishbosheth to be the king over these other 11 tribes. Ishbosheth, his name literally means, and some of your, your Bibles may note this, Ishbael. Ish. Baal, Ishbosheth. And Ishbaal in the Hebrew means man of Baal. That's what Ish means. So Saul named one of his sons man of Baal. Baal's a false god. So it shows us how far that Saul's heart and life had went to name his son man of Baal. And he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all of Israel. So we see this conflict that is now arising between the house of Saul, Ishbosheth, and David. If I'm David, I'm going, come on, really? When's this ever going to end? When's God's promise going to be fulfilled in my life? In verse 10, Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Did you catch that? How long was it before David was anointed to be king over all of Israel? Seven years and six months. A long road, a long process, a walk of patience, a walk of perseverance. Consider this. God's plans unfold in his time. Have you ever experienced that? Church, has God's timing ever been your timing? His timing is always his own. Sometimes, in my perspective, God does things way too early. You ever, ever experienced that? God, I'm not ready for this. Are you kidding me? You're actually asking me to do this? You're calling me to do this? I, there's no way. I'm, not, I'm nowhere qualified to be able to, to do this. And then there's other times where it seems like God's 10 years late. Like, man, I was ready for that 10 years prior. And the Lord's like, no, you weren't. (laughs) You weren't even anywhere close. And so God will fulfill his plans in his time. One of the things that I really admire about David here that really ministers to me is David doesn't force the issue. It would have been easy for him to go, look, Saul's dead. 
I've been anointed in Judah. I have God's promise, so I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to force my leadership upon these other 11 tribes. I'm going to take it by force. How well do you think that would have went? Probably not very well. And it seems like David never got to that place where he was power hungry. He was always willing for God to bring it about in his time, but only if the Lord was doing it. He was going to wait till, till God gave this leadership to him. And there's a big difference between appointing ourselves and being appointed by God. And even think about Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth has been appointed as king by Abner, but he wasn't called by God. So there's difference between man's appointments, whether we aspire it to ourselves or other people tell us, look, this is the position that you're to have, and completely different when God calls, when God raises up, when it's clearly the will of the Lord. You may be under this false guilt because everybody says this is what you should be doing. They're trying to give you an appointment. They're saying you'd be a really good junior high leader. You'd be a great pastor. You'd be a great missionary. You know, your dad was a pastor, so that must mean you have the call of God to be a pastor. Really? Where's that, you know? No, God might not be calling you to be a pastor at all. Maybe you're to be an accountant, or you're to be an engineer, and you're to do that to, to the glory of God. And a lot of people will have their opinion upon your call. But we ultimately have to know from the Lord, God, this is what you've called me to do. And God, you've opened up those doors. So there's a real balance of walking in faith, but also trusting the Lord that he's going to do it in his time. He'll do it in his time. And trust in that and rely upon that. If the Lord has given you a promise, if he's spoken to you through his word, be faithful, walk in obedience, and the Lord will open up the door in his time. And sometimes it's a long wait. Sometimes it's seven and a half years. Sometimes it's even longer, but okay, Lord, I trust your plan. This can be difficult. Where do we find the peace in this journey? I think it's by looking to the cross, looking to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And we go, okay, you died for me. You loved me. Father, you gave your son for me. So I can trust you even when things don't happen according to my plan or my timetable. We look at verse 12. Now Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanam to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side of the pool and another on the other side of the pool. They're facing off here. You've got Abner who's with Ishbosheth, you've got Joab who's with David. Now keep that name Joab in your mind because he's going to become a key player in 2 Samuel. We find about Joab that he's the son of Zariah. Zariah, 1 Chronicles 2 verse 16 tells us Zariah is David's sister. David's sister. So this isn't a dude. Zariah is not a dude. Zariah's mom. She's got three boys and she is David's sister. And so Joab is David's nephew. Talk about all in the family. Abner's the cousin of Saul. Joab is the nephew of David. And Joab is going to be the commander of David's army. So these two men are great warriors. They're faced off at the pool. Kind of an interesting scenario here in verse 13. It's like, are they ordering Cokes while while they talk this out and shout across the, the pool? You know, kind of getting a suntan while this is all taking place. Verse 14, then Abner said to Joab, 
Let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. These men are not going to have a football game. This isn't going to be the playoffs to see who goes to the Super Bowl. They're going to fight to the death that we're going to see. And it's a very casual attitude towards human life. Human life almost becomes a sport here. Joab and Abner are like, we'll just let the young men fight and they'll compete in front of us. And it's always tragic when human life gets reduced to, to this level. In verse 15, so they arose and went out by number, 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. Who is from the tribe of Benjamin? Anybody remember? Saul. So it makes sense that these 12 guys from Benjamin would be siding with Ishbosheth. Also, the tribe of Benjamin were some of the best warriors in all of Israel. They were known for being great fighters. So 12 against 12, and each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the field of sharp swords, which is in Gibeon. So they just do each other in. So there was a fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. God's hand is with David. God's raising up David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, Azahel, and Azahel was as fleet on foot as a wild gazelle. This guy could run. He was fast. These three brothers have a strong bond together. I can relate to this. I have an older brother and a younger sister, and there was a strong bond with all three of us. And my brother and I, we had a policy uh, growing up that, you know, he could beat on me as much as he wanted to, but nobody else could. Can you relate to that? You know, we're 22 month, months apart, and, and we'll find as we go through this that these three brothers were very strong in their commitment to one another. So Asahel pursued Abner, and going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left hand from following Abner. Remember, he's fast, and he's on the, the trail of Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, turn aside to your right hand or to your left and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Azel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Azahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn to the side. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt of the spear so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Azahel fell down and died, stood still. He gives him warning. He's like, dude, back off. Back off. You don't want this. Go mess with somebody your own size. Go, go take on one of those young men. But if you keep coming after me, it's going to be over for you. And I'm not really concerned about you. But your brother, Joab, he's a monster. I don't want to make that guy mad. I know that if I make that mad, make him mad by killing you, he's not going to let that go. But Azel, he, he just keeps pursuing. He doesn't listen to the warning. So hold on to that. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter and make application. Joab and Ab Abishiah also pursued Abner, the other two brothers. And the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amah, which is before Gihah by the road of the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit. 
and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Job and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken surely, then by morning all the people would have been given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel any more, nor did they fight any more. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab is willing to back off. In verse 30, so Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he gathered all the people together, they were missing of David's servants 19 men and Asael 20. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner 360 men who died. Then they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which is in Bethlehem. And Job and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Consider this. Write it down. Third point this morning. It could save your life. Know when to back off. Know when to back off. That's the lesson here. It is a long road. Life's a long journey. It's a marathon. And there's going to be some times where you're going to get a clear warning from somebody. They're sending you a clear signal. They're saying, you better stop. You better stop. If you don't stop, it's not going to be good for you. And as a hell, he couldn't hear that, and it cost him his life. Joab hears pretty much the same thing from Abner. He's saying, look, if we keep doing this, there's going to be huge bloodshed. We're all Israelites. We're all from the children of Israel. Look, we've got a troop right here of Benjamin. If you march up this hill, it's not going to be pretty. And Joab blows the trumpet of surrender, doesn't he? He says, all right, guys, we're done. We're done for today. Pack up your stuff. And sometimes if you're married, your spouse gives you that message and they say, you know what? You better stop. You can't talk about my mom like that anymore. I, you know, you've said enough. I understand how you feel about my mom and you, you need to stop, but you just can't stop. I mean, you're, you're frustrated with, with your mother-in-law. So, so you keep, keep going, you keep pressing. And before you know it, there has been a bloody battle in your marriage that could have been avoided if we would have stopped. Sometimes our kids will send us a signal that they're saying, you got to stop. You got you to stop. I, I'm, I'm letting you know I've, I've had enough. And we can press through that and not heed that and not have discernment. And all of a sudden, boom, there's a conflict there that could have been avoided. In the workplace, if we're paying attention, sometimes people say, you know, I'm not ready for this conversation. Oh, I'm ready to have it. And you're ready to listen. Come on. We need to solve this. We need to take care of this. We need to do this. Nope, you need to stop. It's not the right time. Nope, we're not doing this. Whoa. And all of a sudden, there's this huge battle that, that happens. You know, road rage, all the things that happen in traffic. Just let it go. The Holy Spirit, at times, has spoken to all of us this very profound message, and it's this. Shut your mouth, right? The Holy Spirit's saying, be quiet. You need to stop talking. You need to, to back off. And we've all probably run right through that, just like a yellow light, right? That's to slow down, not to accelerate. <laughs> Learn, know when to, to back off. Be like Joab instead of Asahel. All of Scripture's inspired. 
All of scripture. So these passages are important for us. They teach us things. They put things into our hearts and minds that we can apply. Let's go into chapter 3. Let's see how this continues to unfold. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. This is because God was exalting David. God raises up who he wants to raise up. He sets aside those he wants to set aside. God had spoken that Saul and his household would not reign, that David would reign, and God is lifting up David. We get a focus upon David and his marriages, plural, in verses 2 through 5. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon by Ahinomi the Jezreelite. So that's his oldest son. His second, Chibleb by Abigail, the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Second son with second wife. The third, Absalom, remember his name. It's going to be a key character. The son of Machai, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. Third son, third wife. The fourth was Adonijah, the son of the Haggathite, the fifth was Zephathiah, the son of Abital. So we have sons four and five with wife four and five. And the sixth was Ithrim by David's wife Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. Six sons, six wives. Deuteronomy 17, God gave a warning to the future kings of Israel. God knew that Israel would one day insist on having a king. So God spoke to Moses and said, this is specifically for the kings. Don't multiply silver and gold or horses or wives, all three. Why? Because all three point to trusting in other things than the Lord. If you've got silver and gold, it's easy to not trust in the Lord. So don't multiply silver and gold. If you have horses, it's easy to rely upon the horses instead of upon the Lord. If you have a lot of wives with lots of children, that also points to power, position, and authority. In the ancient world, this is what kings would do. They'd get a bunch of wives, have a bunch of kids, and it's saying it's very difficult to destroy my family. Somebody in my family is going to rule and reign. So all three of these were to keep the heart of the king of Israel trusting in the Lord. David knew this. Deuteronomy is written. Deuteronomy is given to the children of Israel, and he's not heeding the word of God. We're going to find a weakness in David's character, and it's women, it's sexual sin. It's being in relationship with women in an ungodly way. Many of us are familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba, and we're going to get there in a few weeks. What I want you to see this morning is it was a process for David to get to that place where he looked off of his deck, off of his porch, sees Bathsheba, and says, I want to have a sexual relationship with her. He had been on this road of adultery for a while. He'd been on this road of sexual sin for a while. He was pushing the envelope when it came to God's word. Most of the time, that's always the case. Someone doesn't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to live in sexual sin. I'm going to commit adultery. They're on that road for a while, not heeding the word of God, not responding to temptation, thinking that I can can handle it. So it's wise for us to examine our own hearts and lives and go, am I on the road to sexual sin and I don't even realize it? Maybe you're beginning to have thoughts about somebody other than your spouse and you're thinking, what would it be like to be in relationship with them? And you're allowing that to fester in your heart and mind and saying, well, it's, it's only thoughts. Well, thoughts lead to actions, don't they? 
know, just flirting around a little bit with this, this person at work, allowing yourself to justify possibly pornography in your life. If it's not dealt with, that's going to grow into greater and greater sin. And David begins to go down this slippery slope of adultery long before he sees Bathsheba from his porch. We look at verse 6. Now it was so, while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Ishbosheth's really not the clear leader here. Abner's the one who's gathering le- leadership to himself. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Clearly a power move for Abner to do this, to have a relationship with Saul's concubine. In the ancient world, this was to say, I'm assuming the authority and the rule that Saul had by having a relationship with his, his concubine. Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth, and he said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David, and you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel, over Judah, from Dan, which is northern Israel, all the way to Beersheba, and he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. So Abner gets angry that he gets called on this. And what does he say? Well, now I'm going to take the whole kingdom of Israel, these other 11 tribes, and I'm going to deliver them over to David. Ishbosheth couldn't say anything because he feared Abner. He had the fear of man, which brings a snare. So now we're going to see Abner go to David and bring Israel with him. Then Abner sent messengers on behalf to David, saying, Who is in the land? saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all of Israel to you. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Michael was David's first wife, Saul's daughter. When things got squirrely with Saul, Saul said, I'm taking my daughter, and David ran for his life, And Saul had Michael marry another man. And so David says, I want my wife back. In verse 14, so David sent messengers to Ishbosheth. You guys following all this? It's pretty crazy. There's a lot of drama that's happening here. Saul's son saying, Give me my wife, Michael, who I have betrothed to myself for 400 foreskins of the Philistines. Quite a down payment there. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband from Paltea, the son of Laish. Then her husband went along with her to Balruma, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go return, and he returned. Let's have a dialogue here. Was David supposed to do this? Was he supposed to go ahead and take back his wife, even though she had entered into a second marriage? Had God in his word already addressed this? Yes, Deuteronomy 24, verse 4, deals with it specifically. You can look it up for yourself. Deuteronomy 24, where God said if there's a divorce and someone goes on to remarry, 
that you're not to then get a second divorce and go back into your first marriage. If you do so, God said it was a sin, it was an abomination to the Lord and bringing sin upon the land. So two times in one chapter do we see David saying, I'm not going to heed the word of God. You know, I'm going to step over uh, the word of God. And so that applies to some today. You, you may be in a second marriage and you're looking over your shoulder going, well, what, what would it be like if I would have stayed in that first marriage? And God really only honors the, the first marriage. So, so maybe I'll go ahead and divorce the, the one that I'm with and see if I can get back with my first wife or my, my first husband. And, and now that I have hindsight, they weren't all that bad. <laughs> you, having all these crazy thoughts come into your heart and your mind. Well, this is an answer for you. God wants the marriage you're in to last. You're not to go back to your first marriage, and there shouldn't be a third marriage. This is the one that God wants to make last. And no matter how difficult it is, the Lord wants to bring life and redemption into that marriage. So David doesn't heed the word of God. He asks for Michael to return. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, in times past, you were seeking for David to be your king. So Abner's going to go and try to rally all of Israel unto David. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David, saying, by the hand of my servant David, I shall, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. Then Abner also went to speaking in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all of Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So this awkward partnership begins between Abner and David, and Israel starts to align themselves with David. Now there's a problem in this story. You can probably imagine how is Joab going to feel when he finds out now that Abner and David have a covenant because Abner had killed his brother. So Joab comes into the scene, verse 22. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. So Abner steps out the door, and here comes Joab coming back from a raid, and he gets this news. Joab gets this news. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Abner came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he is already gone? Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you're doing. You can't trust Abner. He's, he's here to deceive you. He's here to ultimately wipe you out. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Zariah, but David didn't know it. So Joab says to Abner, come on back, send him a text message, let's have a meeting. What do you think they're going to do? Sit down and have an Americano? Go out and get a hamburger? Five guys? I bet you know exactly what's going to happen. Now, when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took 
him aside in the gate to speak with him privately, and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asael, his brother. David's going, man, I got a real problem on my hands. This whole thing of being king and king over of Israel, it's a difficult, it's a long road. Finally, it seemed like it was headed in that direction. Now my right-hand guy, my nephew, decides to, to kill Abner. How's this going to go over with the rest of the, the nation of Israel? Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Wants to let everybody know right away, I didn't have anything to do with it. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house, and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has discharge or is a leper who leans on his staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishiah, his brother, killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asael at Gibeon in the battle. So David just continues as this chapter comes to, to an end to explain, look, I didn't have anything to do with this. Then David said to Abner and to all the people who or, or David said to Joab, excuse me, and to all who were with him, tear your clothes, gird yourself with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. So they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all of the people wept. And the king sang and lament over Abner and said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters, as a man falls before wicked men, so you have fell. Then all of the people wept over him again. And when all of the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. David says, I'm not going to eat today. I'm mourning over Abner. Now all of the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all of the people. So the people were pleased. Verse 37 and 38, for all of the people and all of Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel? And am I weak today? Though anointed king and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me, the Lord will repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. So what do we learn from all of this? This seems like a crazy chapter. This is the last point this morning, and it's simply this. I think it's profound. God is working in the mess. Amen? God is working in the mess. You look at this chapter, it's got sexual sin. Abner going into the concubine. It has murder. We see Joab killing Abner. But then it ends with all the people being pleased with David. That doesn't even make sense. That's God. That's God's sovereignty. That's God's plan. We would look at a road to the throne and we'd go, this is not good. But the Lord is using all of this sin and craziness and wickedness to ultimately accomplish his, his plan. Does God instruct sin? Does he justify sin? Does he want us to commit sin? No. But he rules and reigns over the foolishness and the wickedness of men. The wickedness of men can't thwart the plan of God. And God's ultimate plan is going to be accomplished. A good way to describe the world that we live in today from our perspective is it is a mess. It is a complete mess. We look at all the things going on and we're just going, 
what in the world? What could all this be leading up to? But we know. We know what it's leading up to. And it's the second return of the one greater than David, the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, where he's going to rule and reign. And God's working through the mess. He's working through everything that's taking place to ultimately result in the coming of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to hold on to by faith. And maybe your life just feels like a complete mess. You're like, man, I got Abner over here. I've got Joab over here. Nothing seems to be going well. God is giving me his promises, but this is a a long road. Everywhere I go, there's difficulty. Everywhere I go, there's confusion. Hold on to this truth. God's working in the mess. God's plans will not be thwarted. They won't be destroyed or distorted. And God ultimately is going to work out his plan in my heart and in my life. Would you stand with me as we prepare to, to pray? I want to give you this application before we pray. Stay with me and hold on to this. It's easy to hear this message, but go out to our cars, head into Monday morning with a great deal of discouragement with the road that we face. God wants to meet us this morning as we worship and as we sing to the Lord and look to the road of Jesus Christ and the suffering that he went through, the road that he walked, and that's where I think we're going to find encouragement for our souls. You knew before you came in this morning that you were on a long road. You didn't need anybody to tell you that this morning. We look to the road to Calvary. We look to the road to the cross. The scripture tells us that even before the foundations of the world, it was ordained for Christ to die. It was the Father's plan that Christ would die. The suffering began long before he was ever born. He's born in Bethlehem, placed in a manger, growing up, and was rejected by his own. His own rejected him. His life is a story of rejection. In the Garden of Gethsemane, praying, Father, if there's any other way possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, your will be done. He chose that cup of suffering. He walked that long road. He was in such agony that he sweat blood. Are you in agony over the road that you're in and you're accepting the will of God? Fellowship with Christ. Here comes Judas, his disciple who's spent every day with him for three years and betrays him with a kiss. Does your road involve betrayal and your hurt this morning? Fellowship with Jesus Christ. He's arrested He's put on trial. He's accused. And as a lamb, he doesn't open up his mouth. They begin to spit upon him, rip out his beard. The crown of thorns is placed upon his head. He's whipped brutally with his back, then taken to the cross, and he's nailed there. Do you feel nailed? You feel like there's nowhere to go? Getting sick of the road, the circumstance that you're on? Look to the cross. And Christ cried out and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Probably the apex of the suffering of Christ for that moment, his fellowship with the Father is broken. That's the penalty of sin. So that we could be forgiven, so that we could know we would never be forsaken. And we focus on that road. We focus on what Christ went through. And then all of a sudden, our road seems a little lighter, doesn't it? And we know that our road is temporary. Our road is ultimately leading to the place that Jesus has prepared for us. Church, he's prepared a place for you. I was looking out the cafe window this morning and God's blessed our church with a beautiful view of the peak. 
some beautiful mornings, some beautiful sunrises this week. It's nothing compared to the glory that we're going to have. You're going to behold the face of Christ. You're going to be forever with the Lord. You're going to know a joy that has the absence of pain and sorrow and tears. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. So Father, we thank you for your love. We rejoice in your love. And right now as we sing, we pray that you give us encouragement for the road that we're on.